Ciao! 
belong to you. Yes, I do. Nothing can separate. Nothing can change the way you love me. Nothing can change the way I belong to you. Yes, I do.
I'm nervous. I tell you, y'all have heard me say that a hundred times, but I'm a little bit extra nervous today, and I, and, and, and I think that'll make sense here in just a little bit. Um, a couple of months ago, I guess, I think it was on a podcast that I was listening to or something like that, I, I heard a guy say that nobody is indifferent to a snake. Nobody's indifferent to a snake. Everybody what he was saying is everybody will have some kind of reaction to a snake, but those reactions can be very different. Uh, some people will scream and run away. Um, some people will feel safe as long as they can keep it at you know, whatever they might believe to be a safe distance, which for some people might be a few feet, and for some people it might be a few miles. Um, so some people, as soon as they see a snake, they immediately begin looking for something to kill it with. They, um, Jerry Clower told a story that I heard a long time ago about a time when he went down to Texas for a rattlesnake roundup. Um, and 
he said that his favorite part of the whole thing is that there was a man there who was taking these rattlesnakes that they were rounding up and chopping their heads off. But he said also that there was a guy there from an animal rights organization who was making sure that they killed these rattlesnakes in the proper manner. And he said, I looked at that fellow and I said, man, how can you kill a rattlesnake wrong? Uh, there just can't be any wrong way to do it. Um, but there's people... Also, when they see a snake, that their first response is going to be that they want to catch it, right? They, they want to pick it up. They want to play with it, uh, maybe take it home as a pet. Um, and then there's people like me, and, and my first question is going to be, what kind of snake is it? Uh, if it's a venomous snake, then it's, he's probably going to need to die. If he's a non-venomous snake and he's not bothering me, well, then I'll probably just leave him alone and let him go. Um, so... If you should ever find yourself, though, walking in some tall grass, and all of a sudden you hear the sound of a rattlesnake, it's a very distinctive sound, even if you've never heard it, um, but you hear that sound, and again, you're in tall grass, so you don't really know exactly where that snake is. All you know that there is danger somewhere. That is a very unnerving feeling, and if you can't see that snake, you, you really don't know which way to go. Right, But the good news in that case is that there's only really one wrong way to go. Right? There's a lot of good ways that you can go that would get you away from that snake, only one bad way, which would be toward the snake. Um, but I would suggest to you that all these different responses to snakes go way back, I think, to even the very beginnings of humanity. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve. Eve had an encounter with the devil himself in the form of a snake, and she was presented with a decision. Uh, the decision was whether she should obey God and to continue to live in the goodness that he had provided, or to trust that snake and disobey God. And even though she didn't get bitten by the snake, she and Adam, the decisions that they made there in that moment or in those moments, certainly changed the world. It changed the world as we know it even today. And just like they had a choice of whether or not to obey God and to live in his goodness, we have a choice to make on that as well. And when it comes to that choice, indifference is not an option. It's not an option. So our choice is a little bit different than theirs because our choice is um, not so much a choice of, in the beginning at least, not so much a choice of just obedience or disobedience. At first, our choice is a choice of acceptance or rejection. We have to choose whether or not we will accept the gift that God has given us, the gift of salvation that he has offered to us in his son Jesus Christ, or whether we will reject it. And when we begin to realize that he did all that for us, because he loves us, that should encourage us to respond by loving him, loving him more, the more that we realize that. It should also inspire us to love one another, because that's really important too. When we realize that because God loves us, um, he gives us grace, he gives us mercy, and, and that should inspire us to give grace and mercy to other people also. But there's a decision that has to be made. And that decision is a personal choice, not one that somebody else can make for us. And you've all heard me talk about my daddy a whole lot, and um, he was one of my heroes, still is one of my heroes for sure. Not just a hero, though, in the classic sense. He was a hero of faith for me. Um, I'm still, still amazed at just how much he trusted God and how much he lived in a way that showed me and showed other people how much he trusted God. That's still one of those things that really amazes me. And his faith was inspirational to me. That's just the bottom line. That's probably one of the reasons that I talk about him so much. But there was a really, really big moment in my life, in my Christian life, and that was the moment that I realized that his faith, even though it was inspirational to me, that it wasn't transferable to me. In other words, his faith was not going to get me into heaven. Um, so, so we 
can make the right choice or we can make the wrong choice, but not making a decision is a decision. Failing to choose is a choice. One thing we cannot do or cannot be in terms of our salvation is indifferent. It won't work. We can choose Jesus or we can choose to refuse Jesus, but there's, no, there's not a middle ground solution. It doesn't work that way. Now, one thing I've learned about people is that a lot of people have trouble making decisions. Turn up the stress level a little bit and people have a real hard time making decisions. It's just the way that it is for a lot of people. Um, another thing I've learned is that most people prefer to have options. And um, sometimes the more options that we have, the harder it is to choose. If you don't believe that, go into a restaurant where they got a menu that's about six or eight pages long and try to figure out what you want to eat. Uh, it's a real difficult for me. Usually I ask the waitress, what would you get? Uh, and see what she says or he says, and then I kind of go from there. But um, a lot of you are probably old enough to remember when Chevrolet made the El Camino, right? And Ford, uh, not quite so popular, but Ford made the Ranchero. And if you don't know, these were vehicles that had a car body on the front and a truck body on the back. And I'm convinced that they were made for people who had a hard time making choices. Um, people that had a hard time making decisions for themselves. Um, how many people do you see on the road driving SUVs today? Now, not that that's wrong, but why do people drive an SUV? For some, they just like them because they're big. But for some, they like them because they give, you know, some of the comfort of a car, but then they give them the ability to haul stuff like a truck, right? People like to have options. And, and I think we can see that in a lot of different ways. And not, again, not to say that that's a bad thing, but it's just an observation that I've made. But I would submit that there's been a lot of people throughout history who have... Uh, brought a lot of problems on themselves because they wanted options in terms of their salvation. There, there's a lot of people, there's evidence even in Scripture where the Israelites, one of the mistakes that they made over and over and over again was that they decided to be followers and worshipers of God, but they also wanted to be worshipers of these false gods that were the gods of the people who inhabited the lands around them, right? Uh, they wanted God plus something else. There's a lot of people in the world who have in history and who continue today to believe that what they need for salvation is Jesus plus something else. If you don't believe that, you can go back and read the Gospel of John. That's one of the things that he deals with over and over and over again in his Gospel was the belief that it was Jesus plus something equals salvation. But that's not true. Jesus is everything necessary for our salvation. Uh, the only way to salvation, in fact, is Jesus. There is not another option. But a lot, of, a lot of people over the ages have spent a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to find other ways. I think William Barclay wrote this. He said that we should not be angry, we should not complain to God that he didn't give us many ways to heaven, but we should be thankful that he gave us one. We should really be thankful for that because the reality is that we didn't do anything to deserve, certainly didn't do anything to deserve many ways, and we didn't do anything to deserve the one way that he's given us, but he gave it anyway. That's an amazing thing. Um, and he did that because he loves us. Now, another thing I've come to realize about people is that there's a lot of people in the world who are willing to accept Jesus as their Savior, who are not willing to accept him as their Lord. I'm going to say that again. There's a lot of people in the world who are willing to accept Jesus as their Savior that are not willing to accept him as their Lord. And those things, those two things, are different. There's a lot of people who are willing to go with God as long as he seems to be going their way. As long as God seems to be going in the direction that they wanted to go anyway, they're good with that. They'll keep on walking with him, keep on following him. But when his plans and their plans are different, they start looking for another way. And any other way, no matter how attractive it might seem to be, is always going to be the wrong way. 
Any other way is always going to be the wrong way. Now, one thing that the Bible shows us about Jesus is that from the very beginning of his ministry, there was really nobody in Scripture that was indifferent toward him. Not anybody that I can think of. Um, there were people who loved him, and there were people that hated him, but nobody was indifferent. And to take that a step further, it seems that the people who really took the time to get to know them, or, or to get to know him, rather, those were the people who loved him. And for the people who hated him, it seems that their idea of him, their idea of who he was, they came to him with preconceived notions about him that kept them from actually committing themselves to him and to loving him. But Jesus presents us still today with a choice. So the question that I would like for us to consider today is, what is your reaction? What is my reaction to Jesus? Will you accept him as your savior? Number one, that's the big question. And if you're willing to do that, or if you have already done that, will you also accept him as the Lord of your life? Because those two things are different. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him? That's the question. Are you willing to commit yourself to the long haul? Are you willing to follow him wherever he might lead, even if the going gets tough, even if it gets uncomfortable? Are you willing to keep following? Because here's one thing that I am completely certain of, and that is that if you will follow Jesus, if you'll commit yourself to following Jesus, one of the products of that is that you will become more like Jesus. See, as humans, we have a strong tendency to become the example that we follow, whether good or bad. So the more that we follow Jesus, the more we'll become like him. And as we get closer to him, we'll want to be more like him. And that can have a huge impact on our lives. It can change our lives for the better, and it can also change the lives of the people around us for the better also. Now, I want to look at a passage of Scripture today from Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 16. It's a passage that illustrates well how some people are willing to follow Jesus until following him causes some conflict with their preconceived notions, their thoughts, their ideas about Jesus, or maybe even about religion. Uh, but again, now those two things are not the same either. So in, in this passage, or just before this passage, uh, John the Baptist has been involved in ministry. He's been involved in preparing the way for Jesus. He's been preaching the word and telling the people that the Messiah was coming. Now he's baptized Jesus and the Holy Spirit. After that baptism descended on Jesus, it, the scripture says, in bodily form like a dove. And the voice of heaven has said to him, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is about 30 years old at this point. His ministry is just getting started. Um, and following his baptism, he's led out into the wilderness for a time of temptation, but also, and more importantly, perhaps a time of preparation to begin his ministry. So then he comes back out of the desert. He returns to Galilee is what the scripture says. And he goes into the synagogues and he does some teaching in the synagogues and he was glorified by all, is what the scripture says. Now, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, I'll stop right there and just kind of a side note. One of the things I want you to notice is that going to church on the Sabbath was a priority for Jesus himself. The scripture says, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Um, as a believer, as believers, it's good to gather with a body of believers. Uh, and I realize that there are people in the world today who are, are forced for different reasons to worship online and that kind of thing, and I'm not knocking that. If that's the, the option that you have, man, that's a good option. And I'm thankful to God that we do have that option today for people who can't make it to church, but it's good to go to church and gather as a body of believers. Now, verses 17 through 20 say this. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, if you notice, at the very beginning of those verses, Jesus didn't say, Isaiah said. He read those verses in the first person, as if he himself were the embodiment of those verses. And the reason that he did that is because he was. He is. Um, and then after he had done that, he sat down, which for us would be, in our culture, would be an indication that he was done for the day, right? He had done all he was going to do. He sits down. He's done. But in that case, in that society, uh, that was a, an indication that business was about to pick up. That meant that he was just getting started because in that society, rabbis and teachers sat down to teach. So then it says that, uh, that, that all the eyes in the place were fixed on him. That's what the scripture says. And, and it sounds like as you read there that there might have been some awkward silence because the people were waiting to see what he would say next. And he went on and he gave them everything that they were looking for and a whole lot more. Now, he went on to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was a pretty bold statement. And in verse 22, it says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. See, that was their initial response to Jesus and to the things that he had said there in the synagogue. And then somebody looked around and said, is that Joseph's son? Somebody said, wait a minute. I know his daddy. Who does he think he is? Where does he get the authority to talk to us like that? Um, if he's going to talk like that, he's going to need to do something to prove himself to us here today. So Jesus went on in verse 23, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me the Proverbs, Physician, heal yourself. We have heard what you did in Capernaum, and we want to see you do it here in your hometown. In other words, we need some proof. Uh, we need to see for ourselves before we will believe in you. But just like Jesus had done with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he, he said... This is not about signs, it's not about wonders, it's not about miracles, it's about faith. It's about believing based on things that cannot be seen. In verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Which is to say that you all, the people that he was speaking to there, had preconceived notions about him and those preconceived notions were the things that were stopping them from believing in him and believing that indeed that scripture had been fulfilled in their presence that day. But either way, these people had a choice to make. And remember, this is happening in a synagogue, in a Jewish synagogue, so this audience would have been Jewish people, and so the things that he was going to say next would have been a really big slap in the face for this audience. It was going to be something that they didn't want to hear, something that they weren't going to like at all because they did have preconceived notions about the Messiah. So Jesus went on, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The really shocking news for these people was that if they chose to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they had also to choose to believe that he had come to save people who were not Jewish. That was the reality that he presented them with in that moment. The widow of Zarephath, in their minds, would have had four strikes against her. 
She was a woman. She was a widow. She was not a Jew. And she was poor. Yet she, as Jesus said, received mercy from God. Naaman, on the other hand, he was a Gentile. He was a Syrian soldier who would have been an, an enemy to the Israelites. And he was also a leper. So he would have been a complete social outcast. But he also received mercy and received healing from God. But the key in Naaman doing that was that he had to humble himself. He had to do what God told him to do and to do it the way that God told him to do it. He had to go and dip himself seven times in the Jordan River, even though he couldn't see how the Jordan River could possibly have been any better than the rivers of his homeland. But eventually he had to submit himself and do it, do what God told him to do the way that God told him to do it. And so that choice, choosing to do that, was what made the difference for him. But Jesus was telling them stories about their enemies being loved by God. And they didn't like it. They didn't want to hear it. Jesus, he does that. He does that. It's not about whether, always whether we like it or how we feel about it. Sometimes we're just presented with facts, and that causes us to have to make a decision. Uh, a, couple of night, a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night, uh, I talked about this, and, and I read from Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus said there, he said, You have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And that's the, the amazing thing about Christianity. That's the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other major religion in the world. I think I mentioned that last Sunday, but every other major religion in the world has some version of the golden rule that we should do unto others as we would have them to do unto us. But Jesus took that a step farther, and he said that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So that's the thing that sets Christianity apart. But for these people there in that synagogue that day, listening to Jesus, that wasn't what they wanted to hear at all. Verses 28 through 30. When they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now again, y'all heard me say, I get pretty nervous when I have these opportunities to stand up and speak, whether it's to preach or even just to do a welcome on a Sunday morning. I get pretty nervous about it. But one good thing that I know is that there are no cliffs nearby. Um, I'm not getting run off a cliff today. Um, so that's good news. So this was one of Jesus' very first public sermons. And I think one of the really big lessons that, that we can learn here is that if we accept Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, we must also accept that he came to save people, anybody who would believe in him. Not just people who look like us, not just people who follow the same guidelines as for worship as we do. He came to save anybody who would believe. In fact, the kingdom of heaven and the people in the kingdom of heaven might look very different than any preconceived notions that we might have about it. But one thing that we must be very careful not to do is not to allow our preconceived notions about Jesus to stop us from choosing him. And we also should not allow any of our preconceived notions, any of our um, concerns or uh, questions, we shouldn't allow those things to hinder anybody else from choosing him either. It's not a good idea. Jesus' idea of the kingdom is that it will include a lot of people who had some really dark pasts, people who have lived sinful lives. Those people, if they choose to believe, if they ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ, they'll be in heaven also. All of us, just like Naaman, when we came to Jesus, if we've done that already, we came to him stained with sin, just like Naaman came covered with leprosy, 
But in Jesus, all of our sins, all of the stains can be washed away. The scripture says that when Naaman went and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River, his skin became like that of a little child and he was clean. That's what Jesus offers to us as well. Now John 3.16 tells us that he came to save whosoever. Not just people of a certain social class, a certain ethnicity, certain political views. He came to save whosoever. Y'all, the good news is we are whosoever's. If we've chosen to believe in him and chosen to accept him as our savior. But again, the question is, are we willing to go with Jesus? Are we willing to follow Jesus when it doesn't look like he's going our way? When it looks like he's headed in a different direction than what we would choose for ourselves, are we still willing to follow? <clears throat> Jesus came to unify people in the love of God, not to create division. Uh, not based on race, not based on social status or any other factor for that matter. <clears throat> the fact is also that one day he'll come again. And when he does, he will create division. But it won't be based on any of those factors. It'll be not based on any differences that we have among us as human beings. It'll be based on our acceptance of him as our Lord and our Savior. I suspect that there are <clears throat> some people here today who are still kicking around that choice. Maybe some of you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you've not yet accepted him as your Lord. So if you are one of those people <clears throat> who have accepted Jesus as your Savior and not accepted him as your Lord, Or, if you hadn't accepted him as your Savior yet, I would suggest that the very reason you're here today is because at some point, God has reached into your life. And God has begun to work in your heart. And he's brought you here today. He's already begun drawing you in. He's presenting you with a choice. So my question today is, will you choose Jesus, will you commit yourself to following him? Will you do that? <clears throat> and I can assure you that every other choice in the world is secondary to that one because the implications of that choice are out of this world. But I want to also remind you that the time is now. The time is now. One day, it's going to be too late. And maybe, just maybe, the reason that Jesus hadn't come back already is because he doesn't want to spend eternity without you. Maybe. Consider that. Nobody wants you to spend eternity in heaven more than Jesus does. Nobody. He proved that in that he went to a cross and he died for us while we were yet sinners. The only question that really matters is will you submit yourself to him? Will you do that? The song that we sung earlier says, I surrender all. If it had just said, I surrender some, would it have been a good song? Not near as good. I surrender all. Will you choose to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sins, to have him as your Savior and as your Lord? So this morning as we close, the altar's open. If you'd like to come and pray 
You can do that. You can pray about anything, not just about your salvation. If you want to recommit yourself to following Jesus, you can do that. Or if you want to pray about anything else, the altar's open. You can come and you can pray. You can also pray right in your seats. I believe wholeheartedly that if you do that, if you ask Jesus to, to meet you there, that he will be faithful in doing that also. If you've got any questions about following Jesus, about committing yourself, yielding yourself to Jesus, I'd love the opportunity to talk to you about that, to talk with you through those questions, to help you find answers. If you've got questions that are concerns that are keeping you from following Jesus more closely, I'd love to talk to you about those as well. Don't be too afraid. Don't be too embarrassed. Jesus wasn't embarrassed when he went to the cross. So don't do that. Jesus is here. Jesus is waiting. He's watching down the road. Like the father of the prodigal son, he's got his arms wide open. And he's waiting for you. And if you have not yet accepted him as your personal savior, today he is waiting. He's calling to you, poor sinner, come home. Lord, thank you again for this day. Lord, thank you for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. <clears throat> and Lord, I pray that you would be with us all. Lord, as we close out this service of worship, as we leave this house of worship today, that your Holy Spirit would go with us. Lord, that you would equip us for service in your kingdom. Lord, that you would be lifted up. Lord, that you would be glorified in the things that we do and the things that we say. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, that you would continue to draw us closer to you. Lord, that we might be more like you each and every day. Lord, that when people look at us and hear the things that we say and see the things that we do, Lord, that they would see Jesus living in us. Lord, that we would be changed by your presence in our lives. And Lord, that the lives of people around us would be changed also. And I ask all these things in the precious and holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Who am I?